Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the club that you're going to want to join. We're the voice of red disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. NordPod, NordPod, NordPod. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome back to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. This is Matthew Zachary. Got a really, really compelling show. I mean, they're all compelling, but this is a really compelling show. Chris Brannigan is the father of Hasty, his daughter, who was diagnosed after seven years of misdiagnosis with something called CDLS, Cornelia DeLange syndrome. He and his wife got drafted into the rare disease parents world and, and they became advocates. And they started a charity called Hope for Hasty, which is raising awareness for CDLS and the rare disease universe. He's a major in the British Army. He served two tours in Afghanistan. And man, is he connected to the cause. And I mean that with a level of gumption I have not heard of. And we joke about this a little bit, but he kind of combined Forrest Gump with Bruce Willis and Die Hard and walked 1,200 miles barefoot for rare disease research from Maine to North Carolina. And as of our taping right now, this was wrapped up like last week. The guy's feet are the size of an air balloon. But my God, what a story. What a journey. You're going to love this show. Brace yourself for Chris Brannigan. And here we go. Chris Brannigan, welcome to NordPod. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. What a story. I mean, like there's 40 stories baked into this one story. I don't even know where to start. But just for the listeners, you, you're literally, and I use this, I don't overuse the word literally, off the heels, see what I did there, of mm-hmm. a 1,200 mile barefoot walk down the East Coast of America. What's the worst question you could be asked right now? How are your feet? That's usually yes. the common one. <laughs> I shall avoid asking you the callous feet and, yeah, what? how much Lotrimid are you yeah. using? <laughs> but, dude, kudos. You did, you combined two American pop culture things together. You combined Forrest Gump with Die Hard because he had no yeah. socks or shoes in Die Hard <laughs> and Forrest Gump just went around the country. Really exciting, incredible stuff. I guess as a complete and utter sessile human who doesn't exercise. How do you train for that? 
I'm sure there's lots of things you could do. I did none of them, if I'm honest, you know. I just didn't have a lot of time. You know, before I before I left to come to the States, myself and Hasty, my daughter, would sort of walk around the block every day for maybe a quarter mile, maybe a half mile at a push. And that was sort of to prepare my feet. But that's not even close to what you need to do to prepare your feet for 20 plus miles every day, carrying weight, etc. You know, so there's nothing I could do to prepare. And for the heat as well, you know, it was pushing sort of into the mid 80s when I got to Maine where I started. It was 80% humidity, you know, and it's just not like that here in the UK. So that was a real shock to the system too when I started. So this was not done. I mean, this is barefoot. Did you ever just have to put on something if you stepped on a rock? There were lots of times where I wish I could have done that, but I just didn't, you know. So I carried a pair of flip-flops with me in my backpack just in case I had to go into a store because sometimes they get Right, upset, right, you know? yes, the practical stuff. Yeah, exactly. They're like, you can't come in here with bare feet. So you take the flip-flops out, put them on, and then come outside again and take them off. But otherwise, every day when I was walking, every step, every mile was barefoot. That's incredible. That's, you must have gone on. I mean, did you go on the major roads? Like, did you use, like, Apple Maps? Like, how did you trace this out? Yeah, so when my wife and I were coming up with this idea, you know, we created the whole route. And the idea was we'd start in Bar Harbor in Maine because we're working with the Jackson Laboratory, whose rare Norfolk disease center is based in Bar Harbor. And then we walked, I walked, I say we because my wife was sort of on the end of a phone every day, but I walked down along the East Coast roughly and ended up in North Carolina. And yeah, it, it was it was really difficult. It's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. You know, when they shoot those scenes in movies, there's something called a chase car, right? It kind of follows you along the way. Yeah. Were, you, were you solo? Was your only connection to the real world was your wife on the phone? That's exactly right, yeah. I think people always thought, you know, there's someone behind in a car or someone supporting, but there wasn't really. I was literally on my own. I was carrying like a backpack and sort of my military webbing and I was carrying everything I needed. I had water, food, clothes, a sleeping bag, a one-man tent, which I slept in quite a bit of the time. So I was entirely self-sufficient in that sense. My wife behind the scenes back in the UK was doing liaison with the media, calling the local press, radio stations, etc., and trying to sort of get us coverage so we could expand our reach. No, I mean, I, I, I'm a pop culture guy. I'm like Bear Grylls meets The Revenant, you know, meets Naked and Afraid. There's all these <laughs> things that are coming together at the same time. I, I, I think we should definitely mention that you are former British Army. So thank you for your service. But I can't imagine that didn't come in handy to prepare yourself mentally and physically a little bit, right? Definitely. I'm still serving. So I've been serving for 14 years now. And oh, wow. uh, there were definitely times where I thought this feels a bit like basic training, you know, and because I was hot, I was uncomfortable. I wanted to give up, you know, I was in pain, but the training, I suppose, kicked in then. And also the memory of what I was doing this for, we were doing this to raise money for the not-for-profit. We started to create a gene therapy for my daughter. So when I needed to, I took a break, you know, and I sat down in the shade of a tree and, you know, had a moment, you know, shouted myself if I needed to, but then I just got up and kept going again. Did you have one of those like solar powered cell phone chargers? Because th those are, I've seen one before. They're really cool. Uh, not a solar powered one, but I had this thing, funny enough, it's beside me and it's just like a brick. It's about the size oh of an iPhone, but you can charge your phone off that for about two days without sort of needing to plug into a wall. And that's how I kept power going, you know, and if I needed to, I could stop somewhere like in a cafe for 10 minutes and get a quick charge on the phone. But 
entirely self-sufficient. I was going to go for like full 70s hand crank, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could see you like on the, on the gerbil wheel in the woods, like trying to charge your phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would have been good. Yeah. So, so let's talk about Hasty, your daughter. I have not heard of this rare disease because it's a rare disease, and I'm sure it's not something that rolls off the tip of the tongue on a TV commercial you'd hear every day. The acronym yeah. is CDLS. What does that stand for? CDLS stands for Cornelia DeLange syndrome. And uh, it's, as a rare disease, it's been around and it's been a named condition for about 90 years now. But currently, there are no treatments at all for CDLS. And when we received Hassie's diagnosis from our geneticist, she said to us, like, there are no treatments. You know, you just need to go away and figure out how to live with this, you know, and manage the symptoms as best you can. And we never accepted that, you know, and we just kept looking and looking until eventually we sort of found what we felt was a solution and we started to get after it. So is this an invisible disease or is this a self-evident disease? Is this something that it took you an insane amount of time to get properly diagnosed? It took us seven years, you know, and I think that's probably right on the right under the middle of the bell curve in terms of how long it takes people with rare conditions to get diagnosed. And the thing is, it, it is evident, you know, kids with CDLS have prominently arched eyebrows. They usually have microcephaly, you know, they're smaller than normal head, smaller than normal hands and feet. There are lots of physical sort of phenotypes that are obvious to someone who's trained, you know, and has seen this before. But the problem is, in the United Kingdom at least, general practitioners, the doctors you see every day are not trained. You know, they have no rare disease training, no awareness. So we went through this sort of cycle, you know, the odyssey that we're all familiar with of trying to get a diagnosis. We were told that Hasty didn't have CDLS following blood tests when she was about five. And then it took us a further two years and enrollment in a much bigger study under the National Health Service to figure out that she actually did have Cornelia DeLange syndrome. How old was she when she was properly diagnosed? Seven. So it was about two and a half, maybe two and three quarter years ago. So this was literally since birth you've been going through this. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm sure it'll be familiar to everybody, but not having a diagnosis meant that doctors always want to say, oh, well, this thing means, you know, she's got an infection or this thing means, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you, you get the brand. For kids, they always get the global developmental delay stamp, yep. which is basically code for, we just don't really know. And let's just put that to the side and move on. And that's really unhelpful. Uh, it meant that we couldn't get the educational support that Hasty needed. She couldn't get help in the classroom. She couldn't get the speech and language therapy she needed. She couldn't get the right medications, you know. And we just kept going through this mill of having to constantly fight with our local authority for schools, with, um, with our doctors, with our pediatricians to try and get things that Hasty really needed. And it became slightly easier with the diagnosis, but it's still nightmarishly hard. I don't like to throw doctors under the bus writ large. I mean, it's a bell curve. I believe the majority of them, overwhelming majority of them, are, are following Hippocrates. They're empathetic. They, they need compassion in their practice. They're just kind of squeezed. But do you think that the experience that you had with Hasty is endemic of a larger issue, which is no one wants to be wrong or say, I don't know? Uh, that's difficult to say. I think the main problem we came up against was that doctors just didn't know, and they knew they didn't know. And we were often finding ourselves in a doctor's office, you know, saying, you know, Hasty has a, a high temperature. And by the way, she has Cornelia de Lange syndrome. It's a rare condition. A persistent high temperature is a real warning sign of something more dangerous. What should we do? And then they would start to Google, you know. Oh, and that's, right in front of you? Yeah, exactly. Let me just Google what CDLS is. 
you know, and you're not going to discover anything on Google, you know, and again, this is, I think every rare disease parent knows that you need to be your own advocate. You need to be your own expert because if you're walking into the doctor on Judy's office, he or she, despite the best will in the world and the desire to help, just probably doesn't know what's going on with you or how they can help. And Google isn't the tool to find out either. And that's really worrying, you know, so we're, we're constantly on edge. We constantly carry this feeling that we need to know. And if it goes wrong, then we feel very responsible because, you know, we, we carry that burden with us. Yeah, I, I always like to say that no one wakes up and says, I'm an advocate. Like you have to be put through some really bad stuff to say, all right, I'm going to not deal with this anymore. This is bothering me. Let's make sure that this doesn't happen to other people like me. Did that happen right away? Do you feel like, I mean, again, with your military background, most people aren't born with gumption, right? It, it, it emerges like a, like a catalyst when it's necessary, like the Wolverine pops out. Uh, yeah. did, it sounds like you had that built into you, but what about your, your family, your surrounding loved ones? Did they embrace this? Did they all rally behind this? I think, yeah. My wife, is, uh, she's far more stubborn than I am. And she always had that gumption, you know, she is from Iran, you know, to get things done, you have to be willing to sort of just push through barriers and obstacles. And, and she's always ready to do that, you know, whereas I, I sort of Irish, British, you know, I like a good rule, you know, I like mm -hmm. to follow the line and do what you're told. So it didn't come easily for me. But the other side was for a wider family that everybody said, oh, well, she'll start talking soon, you know, it's just... It's just one of those things, she'll grow out of it, you know. When, and when she starts talking, it'll be in whole sentences and then you'll wish she'd keep quiet. Everybody had these little aphorisms, you know, that they would say. Nobody really wanted to believe or understand that maybe there was something much deeper and problematic going on. Uh, and that was an obstacle to getting ahead as well, you know, and that, I think, exists in the medical community also. One of the things that CDLS does for kids is, you know, in Hasty's case, she has low-growth hormone. So... All these kids tend to be smaller than their peers. And uh, we approached our endocrinologist and said, look, we think Hasty probably has low growth hormone. You know, we'd like to start growth hormone therapy. And the response we got was that actually for CDLS, it's normal. You know, she's a normal height. You know, there was just an acceptance that, you know, kids with CDLS should be X, Y, Z. And, and an unwillingness, therefore, to tackle the issue. And we really had to push against the system to say, hold on, we want the tests. If she's got low growth hormone levels, we want that to be corrected. You know, saying that she has CDLS, you know, shrug of the shoulders just wasn't good enough. So we've, we've had to constantly fight. And the same for schools. We had to go and sit in our local authority's office and say, we're not leaving. We're physically not going to leave your building until you give us the school that we know she needs. And that went on for days before finally they would engage with us at all. Because it is a process in saving money, not in getting kids into the right situation and that's an everyday battle i think for rare disease families it's like the sedimentary layers keep piling up and making you more and more fierce to demand what you believe is is deserved of everything that hasty uh, needs in her life we'll be right back with chris brannigan here on nordpod back with our guest after the break ah <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. 
And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back. Chris. Tell me about Hasty. Let's let's let the listeners know all about your daughter. What does she love? What does she do? What what are her passions? What does she dream about? So Hasty is she's an amazing little nine year old girl, like every little nine year old girl I expect. You know, she loves dancing. She's done ballet for a very long time. She loves swimming. You know, she's a real water baby. Once you get her into the pool, it's hard to get her out. Uh, <laughs> she. Her real passion, I think, is cooking. You know, she spends a lot of time in the kitchen, either beside me or my wife, you know, and she's chopping and stirring and looking after everything. And she says she wants to be a chef when she grows up. And I think the truth is, Cornelia Dying syndrome means that most kids who have this don't become independent adults. You know, the vast majority do not. They need some level of, you know, dependent living or are completely cared for because they're profoundly disabled and we really want Hasty to have that independence you know to live a life on her own and you know do all those things that we dream about for our kids and that's why we're so motivated to try and create a therapy for her in the rare disease world you know the word rare is right in there have you met other families with children with this condition yeah while I was walking across the states I met a number of families who came out to walk with me who have kids who also have CDLS and you know thanks to the benefits of social media we have lots of families that connect with us sort of through Facebook etc and we get to share stories and tell them about what we're trying to achieve so there are lots of these families out there and they're all facing the same sorts of challenges um, so we are in contact yeah so you have this idea to walk barefoot first of all why the states like it's so much nicer in Europe Clearly, just walk through walk through Spain. Really, it's so much nicer over there, right? So I'm, I'm kind of joking, but why the U.S.? And just from a humor perspective, so you, you, this idea emerges in your head. You talk to your wife. What does she do? She's like, you're out of your mind, or like, awesome, I'm in. Yeah, it was, it was a bit of both of those. So last year, I, I did a similar thing in the U.K. I walked from, I diagonally across the country, basically. And I walked 700 miles barefoot. Easily the worst thing I'd ever done. Within an hour <laughs> of starting, I'd cut both my feet. 
you know, I was bleeding onto the ground and I had realized rapidly that I'd bitten off more than I could chew. But we decided to do it barefoot and it was a sort of process my wife and I went through. We knew we needed, you know, stuck in lockdown one back in sort of quarter one last year. We couldn't raise any money. We already had bills coming in from labs who were working on our gene therapy and we were desperate, you know, and we're sort of anteing up on these ideas. We're going to do a walk. I'm going to carry kit and then... I think in a Jerry Maguire-esque moment of bad pizza and insanity, I said, maybe I'll do it barefoot. And my wife, <laughs> like you said, just said, Perfect. come on, nobody can do that. But that's what I realized. We needed people to say, no way, that can't be done for them to take a second look, to pay attention, because we also can't afford for this to fail. You know, There are too many treatments that are made that we know work, but don't get off the shelf because they never raise enough money. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Jackson Lab. And, you know, when you entered this, I'll say that the store that no parents want to be shopping in, in a sense, was there any research at all for this? Or was it this completely vacuous space that you had to invent something with this lab? What happened was we were on this sort of continuous journey of research and trying to learn about what we could do for Hasty just on a day-to-day -day basis to sort of optimize her health. And we kept reading about gene therapy that was doing great things for conditions like spinal muscular atrophy. And we thought, Hasty has a broken gene. You know, maybe gene therapy is the solution, you know, in our simple lay person's minds. And um, we just started asking questions. And the more we asked questions, the more we came across experts in the field who were saying, you know, you could do it. You know, you just, you need a lot of money. You need a team, you know, but you could get after it and do it. And that's what we did. And we connected with the Jackson Laboratory in the United States. We found that all the expertise was in the States. I think that's the first thing. And that's why we decided to do a walk in the States. The next step for us is clinical trials. And that needs to be in a world-leading hospital, like Boston Children's Hospital or CHOP. And that's Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> you can walk across Antarctica. Antarctica. <laughs> Try that without shoes. Yeah. I think that's beyond me, to be honest. But um, we found there was research, you know, and it was all interested in the mechanisms that, you know, cause the sort of delayed growth. It was in the mechanisms that cause, you know, that, you know, the gastroesophageal reflux or the brain development issues. But none of them were moving towards treatments. And we kept saying, why not treatments? You know, you know this stuff is interesting, but unless it leads to treatments, it's not helping my kid. Mm -hmm. And we realized no one was going to do this unless we did it. And we're reluctant leaders of a non-for-profit in that regard. You know, we dedicate so much time to this. It's exhausting. You know, we're having to sacrifice putting efforts into our careers, into time spent with our kids, families, holidays, you know, really enjoying our kids when they're young so we can invest time into a treatment for our daughter because we just have no choice, you know, and I think that's the boat lots of people find themselves in. What kind of progress can you point to in the work you've done, the money you have raised for this. I mean, gene therapy is a very large umbrella that I, I would almost say is kind of a good problem to have based on not even knowing what this was 20 years ago. I was diagnosed 25 years ago when they just kind of threw you in the oven and, then, and hoped yeah. you baked and lived, right? And these days we, we have in the palm of our hand, literally, the, the entire trillion molecule sequence of our very DNA. And it's a shame that there is no sort of global initiative to break this down for everything wrong with humanity on the genetic level that we didn't ask to have, you know, uh, inside of us when we're born. 
has NHS been receptive to this? I, I mean, you said the U.S. clearly cancer is really big in the gene therapy. I mean, the, all the jargon, uh, personalized medicine, you know, all that stuff. That was a very long <laughs> start of a question, but can you point to progress that you have seen personally since you got into this crazy world? Specifically for us, absolutely. As I said, there was no research that was moving towards treatments that we could see when we started this journey in January of 2020. And we wanted that desperately for Hasty. And since then, so it's been 20 months or thereabouts, we have created, created a personalized disease model with the Jackson Laboratory, who are world leaders in mouse modeling and disease modeling. We've created an AAV9 vector for the delivery system. We've tested that on wild-type mice, which gives every indication that it doesn't make them sick, you know, and therefore that it's safe. And we are currently baselining those, uh, those models and getting ready to move into efficacy testing. So all that preclinical work is happening right now. You know, and assuming we can show efficacy and safety, we want to be in a position to move into clinical trials ASAP once we get approval from the FDA. But in terms of gene therapy writ large, absolutely. Gene therapy, in terms of sequencing the genome, you know, we only had the first genome map in 2003 and it cost 2.7 billion and took 13 years to do that work. Mm -hmm. But on state-of-the-art machines created by companies like Illumina, you know, they can sequence a genome in 44 hours for about 600 bucks and they can do yeah. 40 or 50 of those at a time. Yet we don't have newborn screening. You know, newborn screening in the UK looks at eight or nine conditions. Why aren't we looking at all the known conditions? Mm -hmm. And that's what I don't get. You know, and we're talking about 18 months to get to a pilot for that in the United Kingdom. The technology exists. The will to get there, I think, exists. Uh, it's about money and it's about getting the policy to move as fast as we as rare disease parents want it to. And it's just not moving fast enough. Well, that's the power of a large group like Nord is they bring together the whole, you know, together our voices are louder metaphor and dynamic to force these policy changes, to bring these even, I'm sure there are parents that don't even realize it's possible to get full genome screening in the neonatal state. Like, what do you mean there's only eight, right? Like, of course you want that reaction from those parents, but where does that amplification start to happen? I'm sure you never heard the words clinical trial until you were thrust into this world. Did you have a first impression of that term? I ask for a reason because I still think there's this perception of guinea pigness that isn't really true anymore because we're talking genomics and not, you know, like these mass scale platinum chemotherapies that no one knew about. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we experience that all the time, you know. We've now sparked a discussion in the CDLS world where people are asking themselves, if there was a gene therapy, would you give it to your child? And the, the range of responses to that question is vast. It's, yes, I want my child to be as healthy and live as long a life as possible, to the other side being people saying, CDLS is part of my child's life. I don't want to change my child. And everything in between. I think people don't really understand the space, you know, and in some cases they, they feel like the their child is indistinguishable from the disease and somehow you're changing them to a different person by giving them a treatment. And of course, the sense of guinea pigness, I think, exists. But in truth, the regulatory process is really robust. And I think the FDA, for example, is coming a long way to understanding that you're not going to get a 
a blind control study with 600 kids for a rare disease. You know, it might be an N of one trial, you know, it might be 10 right. kids. And that has to be good enough because living with a condition is bound to be worse than no treatment at all. So we need these treatments. We've got to get there. But as ever, I think the policy space and the culture takes a long time to follow. I really want to jump in a little more about what you said. It's too important to not go back to this idea that there's nothing wrong with my child is, I mean, my, my kids, I have twins, they're 11, you know, <laughs> I know when they mess up. I know like no, no child's perfect, but you're coming from a very interesting emotional vantage as a parent of a child with a rare condition, you know, just suppose there's a, a, you know, a Star Trek beam one day and she gets quote normal that can be a controversial thing to talk about, right? Give us a little more detail into the nuances of the parents that are receptive to this and the idea that I don't want my child to be fixed, this is who they are. So my view and my wife's view has always been that we want for Hasty what we want for our other two boys. We want them to have every opportunity in life. That's why we send them to tutors. That's why we take them to sports clubs. You know, we want to just give them every chance, you know. And in Hasty's case, she's got a rare disease, which in some instances gives her seizures. It means it's difficult for her to retain knowledge she learns in school because it has memory issues and issues with cognition. And it comes later with anxiety disorders, with depression, self-harming, selective mutism. These are terrifying things. You know, if you're asking me, and the question is this simple, do I want my child to suffer from anxiety or not? The answer is not. Do I want my child to have seizures or not? The answer is definitely not. And that's the way I see the question. I think some people interpret the question differently. Um, and I can't say I understand that. But the truth is, it's not like a COVID vaccine where we're saying you have to have it. We're creating treatments that you can choose to have or not have. And they'll work for some kids and not for others, potentially. It'll be effective for some ages and not for others. But I, I don't say that anybody feels something that is wrong or is incorrect. You know, everybody's entitled to their own view. And I understand that. But my view is that CDLS for Hasty is an obstacle to, to her achieving her full potential. And I don't want her to have a seizure in the bath and drown. I don't want her to die from a complication of her illness at age 24 or 44. I want her to be able to live in her 80s like everybody else. I want her to be able to get a job and finish school and get married and have kids. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting that. That is absolutely powerful. Absolutely powerful. The fact that you have accomplished what has been, what you explained to us uh, here on the show, in two years during a time where the planet has been burning like with the pandemic is nothing short of a miracle and really speaks to your passion. You did allude to what the Jackson Laboratory is up to, the progress you've made. Is there a reasonable timetable ahead of you that you look forward to in the next year or two or three? Where where are you at in terms of the pragmatism of a trial, even if it's an end of one trial? I think the simple answer is, I just don't know. And I try not to interrogate that too deeply. And there are two reasons for that. The first one is that the main reason we're on this journey is because Hasty's condition, we know from existing research, gets worse from about age 12. So about puberty, there are things going on that cause the anxiety disorders, the self-harming, 
the declining executive function, etc. All the really scary stuff that nobody wants for their kids. And that means we've got an ever-narrowing, an already narrow window to get a solution for her. And research is research. You know, there's no timetable, there's no pathway, and things can go wrong. You know, you can go down a path that you think, well, this is going to deliver us a gene therapy, and then you find out actually it didn't give us the results we needed. We need to go back and redesign the vector or, or whatever. And the second reason is that it's a lot to think about. You know, when I was doing the walk, I had to walk 20 miles a day. I had to walk 44 days, a thousand miles. And I couldn't think about even walking 20 miles a day. I was in so much pain. I was just thinking about getting to the corner. I was thinking about, I got to get to that big tree and then I'll have a rest. Thinking about the whole journey is really a lot to bear, you know. And it, it puts huge pressure on our family. I'd be lying to you if we said we're taking this in our stride. It causes all kinds of issues and worries, anxieties, mental health issues, you know. I think we've all struggled over the last two years trying to just force reality to believe that there can be a gene therapy. And, you know, some things I just can't think about too much. We've just got to keep going. It's, it's just about the next step. It's not about the end of the road yet. And, and you know, I could sum that up by saying that if, if you didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. And that is the definition of an advocate. Yeah, and, and that's true. And we've said that from the start. We begged, there's another charity that exists in this space, you know, we begged them to do the work. We said, we'll raise all the money. We don't want to spearhead a charity. We don't have time or the capacity. We've got three kids, two full-time jobs, a mortgage. But they just said, no, this, that's not where we're going. And, and we understood that. But we also knew then that we had a choice to make. And the choice was, do you do something to help your child? Or do you willfully decide not to? And we couldn't choose the latter. We had to do something. What's the website listeners can go visit to learn more today? So if people go to hopeforhasti, H-A-S-T-I dot org, they can find our website. But if they just Google Hope for Hasti, they can find our Instagram page, our Facebook, where we have updates literally every day about science, about Hasti and what she's up to and just telling our story. And if people can follow and share and if they can donate, you know, that would be incredible. It would help us complete what is an incredibly difficult journey. Chris Brannigan, you are an extraordinary human being. Husband, father, advocate, I guess like unexpected advocate. No one asks to be an advocate. You've been drafted in. Thank you for your service to the British Army. Thank you for being the voices we need here at Nord. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak on the podcast. That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your rare disease story in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66 and we might just use it in a future show. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Health. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Our senior producer is Andrew McDowell. NordPod is recorded by Matthew Zachary and mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. Or visit us on the web at offscript.com. 
For more information about Nord, visit nordpod.org.